0: We could then, of course, infer from that, that women were supposed to follow the rules, follow what was demanded of them. At the same time, when we dig deep into the archives, we find women's stories. We find that Katharina was not the first woman in her convent, in her former convent Adelberg, who maintained financial transactions with the outside world. She was also not the first woman to have trouble with her family in terms of inheritance. And all these stories are kind of not told enough, in my opinion, because they help us to understand how women in the Middle Ages tried to navigate that little space that was given to them.
1: Welcome to Ska's Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Rasha Kirakosian, Professor and Chair of Medieval German Religious Text Cultures of the Late Middle Ages at Freiburg University. Prior to joining Freiburg University, she held positions in German and religion at Harvard University in the U.S. and at Oxford University in the U.K., where she also completed her Ph.D. Her research is located at the intersection of women's history, text culture and religion in the Middle Ages. And this is the third episode within our theme, Gender. Rasha Kirakosyan was a fellow at SCAS during the academic year of 2019-2020, conducting research on women's history in medieval Europe. We will talk about some of that in this episode. Welcome to Scus Talks, and thank you for joining us for this distant recording.
0: Thank you. I think you wonderfully described all
1: that there is to know. It's very nice to have you with us here on this podcast within the theme gender. So very broadly, what is your research about?
0: As you have mentioned, I work on women in the Middle Ages, not only, but that was my focus in, in the past. And continues to influence my research. When I say women in the Middle Ages, of course, that means that I deal with a small fraction of women, with women of whom we know something. Most women in the Middle Ages, we don't know about their lives. But some have left written traces, documents Some were even authors and wrote their own texts. And so that's where my research comes in. I've worked on so-called female mystics. That's religious women who described their own spiritual journey, their own religious understanding of God and the world. And so this is where we really hear
1: their voices. That's very interesting. We will get back to women who leave traces and... Those who don't a bit later. How come you became interested in this area to study?
0: Well, you know the way we tell stories in hindsight seems always so structured. In hindsight, we tell ourselves, well, this was laid out really early on. But when we are in the situation, these pathways are more erratic, aren't they? So during my studies in Göttingen, I already became very much fascinated by the Middle Ages. So I studied. German studies and also history. And in both, I really enjoyed the medieval classes. Then later in Paris, where I did my master's, I've decided to focus on the Middle Ages and more specifically on rituals and even more specifically on so called ordeals, judgments of God. And it's in this context that I've noticed. Well, I've noticed that before, but in this context where I've researched myself for the first time, historical documents in which it became clear that women are treated differently from men. And researching these cases, researching the formulas, but also the case studies, I've noticed that there is a discrepancy between what the sources say and how dominant male stories are in research, meaning that. Stories about men are actually more often presented in research than female stories, although there are stories about women. And so this discrepancy led me to want to spend more time on these case studies, on these texts from and about women. It's also really an attempt to bring into awareness these stories that otherwise are very easily forgotten about or marginalised.
1: One of the historic women you have looked at is Katharina from Württemberg. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Who was she?
0: Well, the most dramatic point of her life is on the 10th of May, 1488. The Pope issues a so-called bull, that means papal document, in which he demands that Katarina comes back to her religious community because she has fled from it. Now, when the Pope interferes in such an issue, that means that it's pretty serious, right? So that means this behavior as a religious woman to flee your convent must be somehow controlled by the highest instance, right? By the highest entity of the church. Now, who was she? Who was this woman who was able to stir up even the Pope's office? Katharina was a countess. She was the daughter of Count Ulrich V of Württemberg. She lived from 1441 to 1497. And during the first part of her life, she lived at her father's court. So it's only as a young woman that she entered a convent. So she was the only daughter of the first marriage of her father. Her father had three marriages and her mother died not even three years after she was born. The family, although they were counts, were in terms of financial disposition in trouble because there were a lot of wars and a lot of children to maintain. So it was totally normal in this case that, especially if there were a lot of girls, that they would be sent to a convent, because a girl that's not sent to a convent needs to have a good dowry to get a good marriage match. It's normal, actually, that the oldest daughter, Katharina was the oldest daughter, would be married, but this oldest daughter went into a convent. And this is another but, not as a six or eight-year-old, six, seven or eight-year-old, which is normally the case, but as a 20 year old she was about 20 years when she entered the convent now this is important because it tells us that for the first 20 years of her life she really led the life of a kind of princess she was at her father's court she had this interaction with family and with friends and with diplomats and so forth she saw the courtly life and I think although we don't know about how come which convent she chose I'm pretty sure she chose her convent because she doesn't enter any convent, she enters a so called Premonstratensian convent. The Premonstratensians were an order which was famous for the call for women and men to live together. Now, this call was very early on expressed by the founder, Norbert of Xanten, in the 12th century, but very quickly it became apparent that this cohabitation of men and women was not well regarded, so it was very much regulated. However, in the territory of Württemberg lied the Permanent Convent, which can be considered a double monastery. And in fact, the longest lasting double monastery of the order until the 15th century, men and women were living their religious life together in this convent. And Katarina chooses to go there. And I think it's not coincidental for a young woman with let's suppose quite a self-esteem because she lived at her father's court for so long to choose a convent which will be, you know, intellectually stimulating. And another point in this regard is that it's the the Primusitesians are not, unlike the Dominicans or Benedictines, they're not actually monks and nuns. They are so-called canons and canonesses. So the male members are clerics and it means for the female members that they don't follow a vow of poverty. That means as a canoness of the in Order, you could keep your money. Another good reason, right, for Katarina, as a daughter of a countess who received money from her father, she had an allowance from her father to say, I'm choosing this one, this convent, because I'm not giving my money that I'm receiving into the community's fund. I'm keeping it. It's my personal fund. It's very important to consider in order to estimate the agency women had, especially if women are women, financial transactions are agency. And having an allowance of which she was responsible meant that she had some power, which will become more important later when she has troubles with her community, flees and tries to negotiate to keep
1: her allowance. She fled then from the convent. So what happened after that?
0: During this time she lived, it was very unusual, not to speak of, it was scandalous in a way, to have men and women live together, religious men and women who should focus on their prayers. So at that time, we have something called the observance movement, which is a call to refoster some sort of monastic, strict, regulated life. And during this observance movement, women are encloistered, meaning that Female convents get a wall if they are inside the town. Women are not supposed to have any contact to the outside world. No man is allowed into this convent other than their male confessor and, and the person who gives them the sacrament. So there is a real urge to control religious people. And for women, that meant really being encloistered. In this time, to have a double monastery was outrageous. So no one else than her own father, Katharina's father, pushes the decision to separate the men from the women of this convent, Adelberg, where she entered. He has been trying to do that for a long time, but then war came in between and he was even captured and had to be freed by money. And so lots of things happened and, and his endeavors were stopped, but he picks them up again. And combines this idea of separating the convents, the male convent and the female convent, by reviving a Dominican nunnery that was about to die off, so to speak. There was one Dominican woman left in this nunnery by saying the women of Adelbeck, the Prominent women, shall move to this female convent, and this female convent then shall be an encloistered convent, a Prominent encloistered convent. Now, interestingly, the prior and abbots of Adelbeck, so the male, Boss, so to speak, of the double monastery opposes this idea. Probably because they really don't want the count to think that he can interfere in their business because they are not liable to him. They are an imperial foundation, which means their boss can only be the emperor and the pope. But Ulrich gets papal approval, and eventually these convents need to be separated. And we have different archival reports about this. I find it very fascinating to read, for example, that one delegation of women went earlier. Another delegation stayed in Adelberg for a while, apparently until the new convent in Laufen was rebuilt. And of course, not surprising, that's why I'm mentioning this, Katharina stays in Adelberg a bit longer, but eventually she also needs to move out. They try to live there. They try to live in this new place. And what I've recently done is read and analyze texts that were not considered in her life story, texts that tell us about a visitation by Dominican reformers who were supposed to check, are these women really following our strict rule they're supposed to do? And it's very interesting to read that a couple of years after they moved in the visitation, we hear that. The women have far too much interaction with the outside world. The wall wasn't built. There are too many entries and gateways into this female convent. This is not observant. This is distracting the women from what they're supposed to do, which is to pray. So there's this whole catalogue of what they should do differently. Also, they have far too much power in financial transactions, and they write too many letters. And the letters need to be censored and the financial transactions need to be censored and so forth. This is so good for any researcher, historian to see clearly between the lines all the things that women kept on doing in this new place. And only a few years later, what happens is that a fight breaks out between Katharina and her family. So her father has died in the meantime. Her father has made sure that her inheritance is a regular allowance and a very generous, very generous inheritance for a daughter who is actually a canoness. in this case. Most people think of them as nuns. So her relative, who is now in charge, who is now count, is trying to cut her budget down. And he's doing that by communicating with the convent, by actually trying to shift some of her money to the convent, which means the convent will be on his side. Because they're interested in getting this money. And this is when she flees.
1: I understand. (laughs) So basically, there are two big
0: reasons that I see. One is freedom. The convent is supposed to be even more strict from now on. Like they will put up walls, they will censor letters, cut down financial transactions, and all these things. And financial reasons. The new count, her cousin, is tackling her money, her inheritance, and she cannot rely on help or support from her own convent because they will profit from that. So she runs away. If she were a nun, I would say nun on the run.
1: If I remember correctly, Katharina also had a connection to the city of Würzburg in northern Bavaria, or more correctly, Franconia. Why I was one?
0: Absolutely. So the latest message that we have from her is that after her death, a house that she owned in Würzburg is passed on to her brother, to her half-brother. And that is a very interesting evidence that she lived in Würzburg, especially because research so far thought that she entered another Tensian convent, a woman convent in Gerlachsheim. And sifting through the materials, as I did in the last years, I found letters between her and this supposed convent where she was living, in which it becomes very clear that she did not live there because she had another legal fight. She wanted, or at least it says in the documents that she had planned to live there, but the convent insisted that she wouldn't cost the convent any money. So then she started a building project. The premise was that she would live in her own buildings and have her own staff and so forth, and didn't even cost the convent in terms of food. So really, even in terms of living costs, she was going to be totally self-maintained. Now, what we hear in these letters is that she starts the building project, but it's never finished. And in the initial contract, it said she only will move in once it's finished. Now, this strikes me as highly suspicious. And I wonder, did she ever want to go there? Or was this a way, her way, to make sure that she doesn't re-enter a convent? Because at some stage, the master of the convent, the mistress, they call the magistra, gets in touch with this legal document saying, you haven't finished this building project. We have everything documented about how they were fighting and how she tries to get out of this with less financial damage. In the meantime, she makes peace with her cousin on the financial inheritance, making sure that she still has an inheritance, although it's cut down. So, in a way, she makes sure that neither the new convent in Gerlachsheim nor the old convent in Laufen have anything to say, like can somehow have power over her. But she needs to do that with some concessions.
1: Yeah, but she finds a way out anyway.
0: She finds a way out. And although we don't have a document that says, and in the final 10 years of her life, she lived in Würzburg or so, we don't have that, but we have this one document in which the house is passed on, right? So there was a house in Würzburg.
1: For me, it's really interesting to learn more about Würzburg.
0: It was apparently a really good city for women who didn't want to get married apparently in the 15th century it was this city to be in for women who didn't want to get married and the only way to do that was to have this kind of religious life you were obviously not allowed to have a boyfriend or something like that that's like unheard of officially but there were all these so-called semi-religious women so they were not organized in an order but they did good to the people around them and And had a religious life. Hmm.
1: Smart solution at the time, I guess. Yeah. We have Katharina von Württemberg as a case study. But what can this story tell us then about the life of women in general at the time?
0: We have talked about some of the points that made her life special. We can be certain that the path she chose and was able to go in a way was definitely unheard of. This is why the Pope and different... Bishops and all sorts of people tried to intervene, and she also had to make some concessions. This alone tells us that her behavior was considered a normal. Her behavior was deviant. It was deviant. And we could then, of course, infer from that that women were supposed to follow the rules, follow what was demanded of them. At the same time, when we dig deep into the archives, we find women's stories. We find that Katarina was not the first woman in her convent, in her former convent, Adelberg, who maintained financial transactions with the outside world. She was also not the first woman to have trouble with her family in terms of inheritance. And all these stories are, are kind of not told enough, in my opinion because they help us to understand how women in the Middle Ages tried to navigate that little space that was given to them. So
1: what would you say is the general picture of women at the time?
0: Generally, a woman in the Middle Ages is not a legal person. Now, there are some exceptions, but they are very specific. For example, if you had been married and you become a widow, and you're not anymore at the age where you can have children, so you're not able to be remarried, so to speak, then whoever is the judge of your area will be your legal guardian. And if you're lucky, you live in an imperial town and will be the emperor. And the emperor surely then be so much fussed about what you as a widow in this imperial town do or not do. So very specific exceptions. So, the general picture is a woman is always somehow belongs always somehow to a family, that means the men in her world. Or if the woman is a member of a religious community, then she is surrounded by other women and she reports to a woman who is her mistress, her master. But eventually, this woman always, even this. Superior always reports to a man. You see, the hierarchy is clearly patriarchal.
1: Given your research uh, that you do, do we have to reconsider this picture in some way? Or
0: even if we continue finding new stories, we won't be able to tell a new picture because this is how it was. The stories that we find, like the one of Katarina, rather confirm it. Right? They confirm how difficult it was to exercise some kind of agency for women in the world that was systematically misogynist and of course what we need to do is to be self-reflective about our own view on this time and realize that any kind of historical investigation remains a kind of reconstructing and reconstructing is also always constructing so we need to be aware of our own horizons our own desires what we would like to find or not like to find and so forth but in general your question was how can we reconsider this picture I think in terms of reconsideration what I like to do is and what I'm doing in my research is to try and find this very small area in which we can see female agency
1: that's interesting and talking about female agency, I'm thinking of oh, Katharina. She seems to have a lot of agency and ideas and action. What do you think would become of a woman like her today if she had lived in other times?
0: Katarina was able to determine some, some things in her life to some extent. I mean, really, when we consider her life, she was really defending herself in a way, right? It's not that she actively went out and said, you know what, I want this or so. Something happens and she reacts and tries to defend herself. That's how I see it. But she's able to get somewhere, despite the concessions and so forth, she's able to get somewhere because, I'm sure, because she's the daughter of a count. She's a countess. She is not any woman. As a countess who lived for 20 years at the court, she knows some things. She knows how to speak, and more importantly, she knows how to write. We have written documents. That means she has the power of the word. That's so important. She can defend herself in writing and in speaking, and she knows how to gather people around her who will defend her and who will help her. That kind of power is not the kind of power that every woman had, by far not. This is kind of a tragedy of historical research. The documents that are passed on to us are, of course, documents of the elite, mostly. And Katarina belonged to the elite. Considering intersectionality, we need to consider that she is financially well-established. And in terms of intellectualism, you know, she is intelligent. She, she also has intellectual power two really important aspects that mean that she can navigate this small space that's given to her. Most women did not have that. Most women, when confronted with reality, had to put up with it. That brings me to another example, Christine de Pisan, a um, 15th, 14th to 15th century intellectual, we can say, in France, who wrote numerous amazing texts, one which is called The City of Ladies, which is a kind of handbooks for women, tells us something very sad but interesting for us, which is she advises women who experience domestic abuse to put up with it. Her thinking is to say, you may be able to tame the aggression of your husband, but once you leave your husband, the whole world is against you. And this tells us a lot about the society and the pressures that women had to deal with and Christine writes this for ladies even right? she writes this for aristocratic women <laughs>
1: You have also looked at the Virgin Mary as an example of the ideal woman. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Absolutely. So one, one area is, of course, to look at actual women, historical women, which is so important to do. And then there are all these ideas about women that are uttered in the Middle Ages. There are all these, I mentioned the handbook that was written by a woman. And there are other handbooks, there are other didactic texts about how a man should behave, how a woman should behave, how a young man should behave, how a young woman should behave, which tell us a lot about what is the ideal, what do they aspire to, what what do they consider the ideal thing. And in this area, we have courtly texts, but we also have plenty of religious texts. And the one ideal woman during the Middle Ages is the Virgin Mary. She's always called Virgin Mary, right? So although she was a mother, she's considered a virgin. And interestingly for me is that the Virgin Mary has always been a projecting foil back then for ideas about femininity. And also now, Mary is not an apolitical subject to study. And battles concerning gender and feminist issue are sometimes carried out in the name of Mary in research. So Mary in research itself can give us insights into how she continues to be this projection foil for ideas about gender. But rather than pursuing a contemporary feminist argument, in my research, I like to spotlight the medieval understanding of Mary's status. So medieval theology allowed for a nuanced understanding of the nexus between divinity and gender. And numerous studies by people such as Caroline Walker Bynum, Patrick Geary, and Barbara Newman, have discussed the dynamic gender aspects which Marian devotion entailed. These studies, applying historically informed and critical understanding of gender, complicate our view on how a purely male god is contrasted from a female mother vassal. Instead, they stress the human as well as feminine sides of Christ on the one hand and the authoritative divinity of Mary on the other. So what I also find interesting that up to 1500, the majority of medieval Marian depictions would show Mary as a pregnant woman or holding the Christ child in her arms, so Mary as the mother. After all, we need to consider this, the medieval reality was such that women in childbearing age were for the majority of their adult lives either pregnant or nursing. So in a way, this is both a projection for, but also kind of representative of what Young women were seen like
1: you mentioned a couple of times that you research. And also the picture that we get relies heavily on the kind of sources that were left by people, and especially now women of the time. So in your research, what facilitates your projects and what inhibits it and maybe even distorts the things that you want to find out?
0: That's a very big but very important question, which leads us to the kind of self-reflection of their own horizon that I mentioned earlier. One big aspect which is only slowly being tackled in research, is the history of the discipline itself. Until a few decades, historical research was mainly conducted by male researchers. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to say previous researchers were biased or anything like that, but it's also undeniable that certain research topics were preferred over others. So. There are dominant topics in research, there have always been, and the path for these directions have been paved by former researchers. And in this regard, I found, especially in Katharina Württemberg's case, the research opinion that was uttered over 100 years ago to be still dominant, which was women, religious women, were not active in shaping their lives. They were. Passive; They were only receiving. And these opinions are very long-lasting. They're very hard to rewrite. This is also the case for another person I research a lot, which is um, a man, Meister Eckhart, who was a Dominican uh, in the 13th and 14th century. And he was very much painted in this... Anti women picture in the past century, this research opinion is still very much dominant. And I've worked on this um, recently and really focusing on the written sources that we have from the Middle Ages. I can't find any bias that he had against women at all. Yet in research, this was uttered by some very established and renowned and also good researchers, but it was uttered with so much authority that it's still considered consensus, that it's still considered the mainstream thinking. So it takes a lot of time to first identify the areas where our view of the past is very much influenced and distorted by the history of discipline, and then tackle this and proving that the picture should be more nuanced. The underlying assumption that inhibits a lot of this kind of research remains that idea that the human being is a man at default. That's what we need to tackle, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. You know, even in biomedical research, it's not uncommon that more research is done on male diseases and on male subjects, so to say,
0: Exactly. I mean, I'm talking about the Middle Ages because that's my area of specialization. That's what I research. That's what I work on. But don't get me started on the long Middle Ages, on how much actually the issues that I research strike me, unfortunately, as still lasting to some extent. I couldn't agree more with you.
1: But then for you... What does it look like practically when you start a research project? How do you plan and how do you do your work with the um, material in different archives and so on? How how do you go about So
0: sometimes you know more or less what you want to research and then you go into the library where a certain book is kept or into the archives for the documents. And then you stumble upon a surprising record. And what happens to me is first that I think, hold on, this must have been researched. Someone must have seen this. And quite often, yes, someone has seen it. But then you read about what they wrote about it and you go like, what? I see something else. Or they omitted this or that. That's natural because everyone looks at a document with different presets and different questions. So it is important to even recess something, even if it has already been discovered. You know what I mean? But sometimes there's really something new you can discover. and Quite often, the related material to what you've discovered is kept in separate, discrete folders at different places. This makes things difficult. This is not the modern archivist's fault, but due to the history of the archives itself, documents from the Middle Ages, for example, had a great chance coming down to us if they concerned the legal clarification of property or long-term income, and even more so if they were transmitted in a monastic setting because Religious houses were interested in keeping their records. Documents of everyday transactions or reporting about a personal human fate, however, were, for practical reasons, much less likely to be preserved. If they survive, it happens most often purely on the grounds of accidental circumstances. This makes our research much harder. And on top of that, documents are often not catalogued at the item level, meaning that we need to widen our search and invest more time into it. So rather than saying, this is a letter written by X to Y. The catalog will say documents on X, and you don't know who the Y is or that there are letters included. So, this means that we need to be aware for widening our research and being open for what the archives will have in check for us.
1: Mm. But this resonates quite well with the previous episode in this theme, gender, where I talked to Maria Ogian about her work on gender at work. And they, she and her team, they work a lot with legal records a bit later on in the 18th century. But still, I mean, it's that material is well kept and they can go and investigate that. Great. Right. Yeah. So is there anything that can be done about these problematic issues with the material and archives, or do you have any suggestions?
0: Yeah, absolutely. First, I want to stress that this painstaking work of going through the sources is rewarding because it uncovers genuinely new insights, stories that have not been told because they do not fit into mainstream historiography emerge. And this is in line with ideas developed under the flagship of Histoire de Mentalité by Chartier and Le Goff, where we need to reassess and assess approaches to historical inquiry through critical source studies. So I think supplying microhistories help us to flesh up the skeleton of basic narratives and to correct these narratives when necessary. So with these new insights, we need to go what Le Goff called beyond history and telling unforgettable lives and untold stories may help us to enrich in the plurality of historical perspectives which often form the basis for more widely held opinions speaking about you know views that last until today so reasons for why master narratives developed are manifold starting with what was documented and what was not what was copied for posterity and what was not and therefore was more likely to get lost going over to natural decay War booty and more purposeful destruction. for example, in the case of the archives concerning Katharina Württemberg, some was lost in the religious wars of the 17th century, and specifically when Swedish soldiers destroyed some of the archives. While most of these factors lie outside our area of influence, the archives that have survived need our critical attention. as it is here that we may discover and re-examine history.
1: Is there anything that you would like to add about your own research or about related issues?
0: What we have talked about mainly in the past 40 minutes or so was how women were seen and how they tried to determine some parts of their lives or how they were Fighting a kind of projection foil in some cases, in most cases, we don't know how they dealt with that. The other area that I focus on is mysticism, that is, how the soul is considered to be a place where divine encounters happen. And in this era, we have an astonishing amount of female voices in the Middle Ages. This is an area where religious women expressed their opinions, reported about experiences that they supposedly had, whether they had them or not is not something that I find worthwhile kind of investigating because it's nowhere provable. But more importantly, were they successful with the stories they told? Did people believe in it? The fact that they were written down tells us that they were successful already because a woman writing was something... In itself, something very special and very exceptional. And having so many records mean that women were able to claim this kind of authorship.
1: Mm, that sounds very interesting.
0: Yeah, names that come into mind are of course Hildegard of Bingen, and then in France, Marguerite Poret, who was executed at the stakes for her thoughts and her book. She was told. She could save her life if she withdraws from the claims in her book and withdraws the book out of circulation, so to speak, but she didn't. So she had to be burned for that, which is, again, actually quite an exception in the Middle Ages to be burned as a heretic. That's something that really becomes more frequent in the early modern period with witch hunts. But that tells you that she did something that was considered a no-go by the church because she was claiming that The salvation of the individual soul is independent from the church. Other names, Gertrude of Helfter, Gertrude the Great. I wrote a book about her, about her writings and visions. And also someone I worked on extensively is Christina of Hane. Mechel of Magdeburg is another very prominent mystic.
1: This is just a thought, but you you read and research these women who have left traces in history. Does that influence you in any way and, and your view on women and being a woman?
0: First of all, I'm a woman of the 21st century, right? So my own look on this is very much influenced by that. You know, it's an interesting question because someone asked me, is Katharina Württemberg a strong woman? And I thought, this is a weird question because how can you be strong in a system that doesn't allow you to be strong? that doesn't foresee you to be strong. I don't think it was considered a successful life that she had in medieval terms. In medieval terms, she was a deviant woman. Was she happy with it? We don't know. Was she happy to have a fight with her family, to have constantly lawyers running after her? I don't think she felt it to be self-fulfilling or feeling this kind of great agency as a woman. It's very important to distance ourselves you know, to distance our own wishes and desires or imaginations from what we're researching. It's very important to do that, but it's also very tempting to think, wow, what a woman. I definitely think she deserves our respect because she had to fight so hard. and You can tell that it was a battle. She deserves our respect. Whether she was a strong woman is a different thing altogether. as She can be considered one. And you know, looking at these things, we talked about this earlier, of course, some of the issues are not specific to the Middle Ages, but are due to structures that are much older and structures that keep influencing women's lives today. In a way, we need more research that looks beyond these time periods. That's, of course, one big area of feminist research. To look into these structures, into these misogynist structures that are not period specific.
1: Learn from the past to understand our time today.
0: Absolutely, and to make it better.
1: Let's talk a little bit about SCAS. You were here at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study in the academic year of 2019-2020 as a scholar. Can you tell us a little bit more about your time here? How was it?
0: It was just wonderful. It was just really wonderful to have this space that is somehow outside space. This place where you can research, where you can encounter other researchers, in a way it was a lot like a monastic life. I liked that a lot. I liked that a lot. I liked this community aspect of it. We had lunch together every day and what is interesting in that setting is actually I thought a lot about monastic life during this year, researching Katarina's life during this year and then I continued researching Katarina's life, but actually while reading up on monastic life and on her monastic life and living myself in a kind of modern, post-religious, secular community life was very interesting for me. To see the dynamics that we had and then realize you know, the conditions of fruitful, productive thinking that can be set by a space like this.
1: I know that you initiated one project with Karin Jensen, who has also been a guest on this podcast earlier.
0: That's really a match made in heaven. Karin is interested in the Middle Ages. I am interested in neuroscience. So we started very early on to talk and to find different areas where our interests intersect. So in her research group, I gave a little workshop on pain in the Middle Ages, and we realized that there is a lot more to do together, actually. And one thing we have started to actively research together is about the medieval roots of the clinical trials, of test trials. That's been very rewarding, very interesting. We've been able to publicly present our work last June at Hamburg at HIAS, where I was a fellow last year. And it was very nice to see that our ideas really echoed with the audience and they were very well received. And the other thing, so I've worked with Karin, I've been working with Karin Jensen, and I've also connected to other researchers in Sweden. That's another really good thing that came out of this year. In Sweden, I've traveled a lot. I gave talks around the country and I've been able to connect different people together. So last July was the International Medieval congress and Leeds it happens every july and it's one of the two major medieval congresses next to kalamazoo for this conference i've put together two panels on the topic double monastery and three people out of six speakers were from sweden and were people i've been actively working with since staying at gus and so it's wonderful to for me to see how this year is continuing to influence my work and, and it's continuing to be productive.
1: Very nice. So, you left SCAS in 2020, I assume, when the pandemic had started. What happened after that? So,
0: the pandemic was a whole topic for itself, of course. And the way it was handled at SCAS was just beautifully with having understanding for people who needed to travel back and allowing the intellectual space to somehow come with us, travel with us by offering online formats and so forth. So that in itself was actually a huge help in overcoming this trauma of the pandemic. For our generation in Europe, I have to stress in Europe, right, we have not experienced war. And this was the closest thing that came to this kind of experience of somehow being thrown out of your normal life and feeling a danger around you. So, being in the SCUS bubble, even though remotely and virtually, helped a lot. What happened afterwards? I took up a new job after that. So, this is another way that SCUS was like a kind of very interesting transitional phase. I went to SCUS as a Harvard professor. I came out of SCUS as a Freiburg professor. <laughs> so, I changed my position and took up the chair of medieval German and religious text culture here in Freiburg. I've been able to establish my chair here and the last year, so the academic year 2021-2022, I spent at Hamburg for a fellowship at the Hamburg Institute for Advanced Study, which is a new institute and which was very much interested to hear about my experience at SCAS as a kind of model. So that in itself was a very interesting experience also. And now I'm back in Freiburg and I'm facing a very intense and full term ahead of me as department chair. So everything remains very exciting.
1: Thank you for joining me and our listeners on SCAS Talks. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You have heard Rasha Karakosian, professor and chair of Medieval German, Religious Text Cultures of the Late Middle Ages at Freiburg University. We have talked about her studies on Katharina von Württemberg and how to find more untold stories of women living in the Medieval Ages. We also learned more about her collaboration with neuroscientist Karin Jensen, you can hear more about the research of Karin Jensen in episode number 12 with the title the complexity of pain and placebo effects this was the third episode on our theme gender in the previous episodes within the same theme I talked to Maria Orgian, professor in history at Uppsala University about her ongoing project gender and work I've also talked to Susan Peterson governor Morris professor of British history at Columbia University about her current book project, Balfour's and Love and Trouble. These were episodes 37 and 31, respectively. Currently, we feature the following topics. Developmental issues and human rights, Latin America, gender, and also genetics and evolution. The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic, and went on to also feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures in Asia, citizen and state relations. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCUS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SkaS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Rasha Kirakosyan once again for talking to me. And thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.